According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in Proverbs, not Proverbs, Philippians chapter 4. Proverbs is Wednesday morning. This is Sunday, right? I hope it's Sunday. I don't have any problem. If this is Wednesday, I can switch to Proverbs like that, you know, and then even better, I get rid of the necktie. I don't wear neckties on Wednesday. All right, Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing. Of course, verse 6, we've had it memorized since we were kids in Sunday school. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we have four different prayer terms in this verse, and we've looked at all four of them. They're all nouns. Each of these nouns has a cognate verb that goes with it. And uh, if you have not been with us in recent classes, then I'll just run through them real quickly. I won't spend a lot of time on them. But what we are doing before we move on to verse 7 and talking about the, uh, the peace of God, uh, we are taking a look at prayer and giving a, a synthesis on what the New Testament says related to prayer in, in uh, these eight terms. And so that's where we left off on Wednesday, what I want to jump back into here this morning. Before we do that, though, it's important that we are in fellowship, that our distractions are set aside. So let's take a moment for silent prayer to quiet our hearts for the truth of God's Word. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the blessings we have to study, to show ourselves approved. And Father, it's it's curious that here we are right here, right now, at this very moment, we're praying. We are engaged in the activity that we're studying. (laughs) So we're doing it, but we want to do it better, Father. We want to do it more biblically. And so we're calling upon you, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding and show us Uh, what it means to pray, what it means to worship, what it means to be blessed, what it means to bless you in our prayers, so that all these things, Father, we might function in a manner that glorifies your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, looking at these expressions, and we listed them for you, this would have been main point five and sub point D, if you're taking the notes and keeping your outline. Uh, The fourth and fifth imperatives are the twin absolutes. That is, the be anxious for nothing, but in everything, uh, make your requests be made known to God. So we have the twin absolutes of the in nothing and in everything tandem. And then within this, under subpoint D, we took a look at the four prayer terms, the term for prayer, the term for supplication, the term for thanksgiving, and the term for request. And in all four of these, each one of them, paints a slightly different nuance, a slightly different aspect for what we're doing. The prosuke aspect, plus its cognate verb of prosukamai, uh, it's the most common of all the prayer terms, and it really stresses the elements of worship and blessing. In fact, you can prosukamai for hours and never get around to asking for anything. And uh, that's, a, that's a blessing to just come before him for his goodness in terms of pros. Yukamai, we have the aspects of it there. And it is a worshipful activity. When we come before him, it is an act of worship. The very act of coming before him is, is a, uh, a, uh, a refutation of the adversary. The fact that we're not going to him, we're going to God. That he is the one that is worthy of our worship. He is the one that is worthy of our supplication and our, uh, and our praise. So it does stress those elements of worship and blessing. Then deasis, this is our supplication, sometimes it's rendered petition, and if you have a really rigid uh, distinction there where you insist that supplication is praying for others and petition is praying for yourself, uh, that's, that's really a, a distinction, an artificial distinction that we kind of create just in our own word usage because uh, the Greek word deasis is sometimes rendered either way. It's rendered as supplication here in Philippians, but it's rendered as petition in Ephesians. It's rendered as entreaties in uh, in 1 Timothy 5. And so sometimes um, the Greek New Testament has a way to really kind of 
pop a bubble there if we have a uh, something that we're we're counting on as far as our English usage is concerned. I still say it's worthwhile to maintain an English distinction and to maintain a con- conceptual distinction in terms of praying for others before we pray for ourselves. I find there's a value in that, but it's an attitudinal value. It's a theological value that's not really grounded in uh, you know precision as far as the Greek vocabulary is concerned. Uh, here, though, the uh, the concept of deamai, the concept of deasis, these uh, the etymology behind uh, this root really does highlight the deficiency, the need, the fact that we are the ones that have the deficiencies, and God is the one that fills those deficiencies. He meets every need, and so we go to Him to meet those needs. And it, it really, like Peter said, when Jesus said, "Are you too?" You know, when the the, the hordes were were departing from Jesus, and they had attendance was dropping off, and the parking lot was getting more more sparse, and the, the treasurer was reporting a, a diminished income, all those kind of things. And uh, so the Lord told the disciples, he, he told Peter, he said, uh, you're not also going away, are you? And Peter said, Lord, where would we go? He said, you have the words of eternal life. And that uh, is such a, a marvelous statement on Peter's behalf, and it really speaks to uh, to who we are and what we're doing. And in this concept, where else would we go to have our deficiencies met? Uh, we have deficiencies, and he meets them. And so where else would we go? Uh, certainly the uh, the adversary wants us to come to him. The adversary uh, who vowed to be like the Most High God, uh, part of his self-delusion and part of his uh, his routine is to try to provide for his own children, and he provides marvelously for his own children. But we don't want any part of that. That's the uh, that's the reality here of the angelic conflict. Then we have, of course, the Thanksgiving, and when you teach Thanksgiving, you're teaching grace. That uh, Eucharistia has charis in the middle of it. That true biblical Thanksgiving is an orientation to grace. It is a grace response to grace giving. It must be the attitudinal foundation for all prayer and supplication. Then the fourth term is the term itema, and the verb itel. Each of these four nouns has a cognate verb that goes with it. And so what I've done then, itema is a request or a demand. Uh, it is simply uh, the the thing that you're asking for. It's the sometimes we talk about the ask. It is the ask. It is what you're laying there before the Father that uh, that He can provide. Now, in synthesizing all these things, well, we're doing this under uh, point E then, an inductive survey of the New Testament usages of these four nouns and four verbs. Because if you're going to combine all eight of these terms and do a massive global search through your New Testament, you end up with nearly 300 verses that you're looking at. You end up with 289 usages in uh, however many verses that that takes place. 256 verses in the New Testament. That's a lot. That's a lot to sift through. That's a lot to try to boil it down and, and then give a, give a structure to. So I've simply done it this way for today, uh, giving four really broad realms that we can survey, including the teachings of Jesus that we covered last Wednesday night, the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 6. He's got a lot to say there. And in fact, you could even break that down into two components. Because in the first part of that sermon, he's talking about praying in secret in your closet uh, and uh, and so forth, that the Father who sees in secret will repay. And then in the second part of that uh, same context, in Matthew 6, 5 through 13, is when he gives the disciples' prayer, when he gives the, the model prayer of our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so there's patterns of prayer that we can glean out of that as it's you know, labeled the, the, the Lord's Prayer in a lot of uh, in Bible editions, but really I think John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. I think that, that Matthew 6, that the Sermon on the Mount prayer is, is the disciples' prayer. It's the beginning model prayer. They said, teach us how to pray. And so when you're first starting, when you're not accustomed to prayer, and it helps if you have a model, you have a pattern, you've got a, an outline to follow, and uh, you can make use of that. Also Matthew 7, Matthew 26, uh, that's at the Garden of Gethsemane when he kept trying to bring his disciples with him and they kept falling asleep and uh, they couldn't stay awake long enough to pray with him there in Matthew 26. Uh, Luke 18 is one that bothers a lot of folks because it seems like a negative example. It seems like that widow is just a pestering, uh, uh, just a pestering nag and she keeps going back again and again and again. And finally, the unrighteous judge is just sick of her coming back all the time. So he's not, he's not a type of God the Father at all. He's like the opposite of, of God the Father, which is the whole point to the parable, is that because here, here's somebody that's not a type of God the Father, and he can get worn out and gives what, the, what the, the, the widow wants, and Jesus says that's the positive example. 
Go to your heavenly Father who is not an unrighteous judge and wear him out like that widow wore out the unrighteous judge. So Luke 18 gives us the, uh, the aspects there. John 14, 15, 16, and 17. This is really where we ran out of time and where we left off. So let's, let's pick up here, John 14. And uh, we'll quickly go through the first three and then we'll spend some time with John 17. And then we'll get beyond Jesus' teaching into the rest of the New Testament or points 2, 3, and 4. What I find significant, of course, with the Upper Room Discourse, that's what we have here from John 13 to John 17, is we have a preview of the church age. We have uh, our Savior was giving information to His disciples, and on this night they could not grasp. On this night their heads were spinning. But they needed to have this message so that after the day of Pentecost, when they received the Holy Spirit, these very words would come back to their remembrance, and that they would be equipped to, uh, to enter into the church age uh, even though there's no New Testament written yet, they would be equipped to start the church age on the basis of the upper room discourse, the words that Jesus gave them here on the night in which he's betrayed. And so uh, we get little glimpses here of things as it relates to prayer that are particular to you and me, per, uh, that are particular to the body of Christ in the church age that uh, don't really apply in the Old Testament, don't really apply to Israel. And I don't know if you ever stopped to think about that because Old Testament saints could pray. Old Testament saints would pray a lot. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 119 had all kinds of prayers. And, and Hannah had prayers for, for Samuel. There's a lot of prayers in the Old Testament. David, I mean, half of the psalms he wrote are prayers. So there's a lot of prayer in the Old Testament. The difference being, though, is what Jesus speaks about, and it starts to get introduced here in the Upper Room Discourse, the night in which he's betrayed, we start to have access to the Father that's grounded in a positional truth reality that no Old Testament believer would ever even dream of. And so that's what starts to come across here. Not only can we pray like they could pray, we can pray in a way they couldn't. Because they had an earthly priesthood, they had mediators between them and God. We are in Christ. We are seated at the Father's right hand. And there is such an access that we have. And those are the glimpses that start to be uh, revealed here in in the Upper Room Discourse, in, in John 13 through 17. Now the church is still a mystery. Jesus is not unveiling the mystery yet. But the words that he gives are a preview for when that mystery does get revealed, this doctrine becomes applicable. And so we want to be clear on that. All right, John 14 and verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And we have a pattern here whereby we can pray to Jesus. We don't just pray to the Father. We can pray to the Father, and we normally do pray to the Father, but we can also pray to Jesus. And this was never done in the Old Testament. The the Jews were waiting for Messiah to come. I don't know that they ever prayed to Him, that they ever prayed, dear Messiah, and then asked Messiah to do things for them, because Messiah was still coming. Who's the Messiah going to be when He gets here? See, He's going to be a son of Abraham, He's going to be a son of, of David, uh, you know, He's going to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. They were able to narrow it down so that when he was born, they said, okay, that's him. But prior to his arrival, was there ever an Old Testament passage where believers were told to pray to the coming Messiah and he would do things for them? I don't believe it's there. I think that's a facet for us as the bride of Christ. We can go to the Lord and we can pray and ask him. Then in chapter 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Now this also speaks to a reality that no Old Testament believer would have ever had. The positional truth of being the branches in the vine, that was not a reality in the Old Testament as it is for us in the body of Christ. So if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. Now I think this too we can spotlight as being unique to the church. That Israel was a chosen people, but not chosen as we are chosen. Not chosen to be a mystical body that has unity with the Godhead. Not in the way that the church is. And the idea to bear fruit, that fruit would remain, 
I see Israel as a covenant nation. I see Israel as, um, as a witness, as a light to the Gentiles, and that they are called salt and light in, uh, in their capacity. But I don't see the emphasis on fruit bearing for Israel the way I see it for the church, as the church abides in Christ. So that becomes a unique prayer component in our fruit bearing, so that your fruit would remain. And whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Now you could say that in the Old Testament prayers, they were praying to the Father. I believe they were praying to Yahweh. They were praying to the Godhead uh, without really a particular Trinitarian distinction. But they certainly were not praying to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. They didn't have the right to bear that name. See, when you pray in Jesus' name, that means that you have full right to, to name that name. See, if it's like signing the check. You know, imagine signing the check, Jesus Christ, because it's on his bank account. He's he's good for it. We're not. We pray if, if I sign my name on it, you know, how far does my credit go before the, the throne of grace? But Jesus, that's the beloved son. He's the one for whom the Father gives all things. He's the heir of all things. And so no Old Testament prayer was to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Ours is. And there's a, there's a power in that. In chapter 16, we have verses 23, 24, and 26. In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Verse 24, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. And I think when he uses this language, when Jesus is using the language of the until now, but moving forward, that's a contrast. He's really laying out this, things are different moving forward. That uh, they're, they're on the cusp of crossing into a whole new stewardship. Which they don't understand yet, but they will when, uh, when it happens. So when he uses that language of until now, similar when he talks about the kingdom of heaven suffers violence until now. There's other things that, that he speaks of where he's really cluing his disciples into the change that's about to occur when he's dead and raised and and ascended to the Father. Verse 26, in that day, I guess I can, why did I skip over 25? I don't know. Um, These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. So there's a change. Something is different once the church age begins. In that day you will uh, ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Really, the church age is is an amazing age, and our dispensation is pedagogical. Our uh, dispensation is grounded in the agape love of God the Father, the love of, of Christ. Uh, we're to know the love of Christ that surpasseth understanding. And these are the things that uh, that we get into that no Old Testament saint would have even dreamed about, wouldn't have even had a, a context to, to, uh, to imagine. And so uh, we see it described here. They're on the verge of this, and Jesus is talking about this. He's also promising them that the Holy Spirit is coming, and uh, that's something that you know, should have shocked them because really all they have in the new covenant is the promise of the of the Holy Spirit coming uh, in the kingdom, the Holy Spirit coming with the new covenant, the Holy Spirit coming when all Israel is saved and, and His law is written on Israel's heart. The idea that the Holy Spirit is coming after Jesus departs, that's a mystery, that's new. And so uh, they're going to have to get a, a frame of reference to understand that. Now all of that from chapter 14, 15, 16, it leads us now to chapter 17. And while we call this the, uh, the upper room discourse, uh, I like to call it the upper room and walk to the garden discourse because you'll spot at the end of um, chapter 14, he says, uh, get up, let us go from here. Okay, And so he continues speaking to them as they leave that upper room and as they're walking uh, away. And so uh, we have uh, the aspect of it there. And then his prayer in John 17 Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And so all those red words in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, was Jesus speaking to his disciples. 
The words are still read in chapter 17, but now he's speaking to his father. Now he's going to the father in prayer. And uh, as I mentioned on Wednesday, the word prayer isn't in this verse. In fact, the word prayer isn't in this chapter. All four of those nouns, try to find them in this chapter. All four of their cognate verbs, try to find them in this chapter. Jesus is illustrating the greatest prayer anywhere in Scripture, and he doesn't actually use the word prayer. He just lifts up his eyes to heaven and he speaks to his Father. And that's how simple it is. That's how simple it is for all of us. At a moment's notice, we can just lift up our eyes to heaven and say, Father, right? We can say, Father, help. (laughs) And it's as quick as that. We don't need the ritual. We don't need the, the sacrificial animals. We don't need to go to a certain place. We don't need to proceed through, uh, through an outer veil and an inner veil and a third veil. We're already there within the veil, see? And uh, so we just simply lift up our eyes and say, Father. And we have it here. And how powerful is this? Um, the hour has come. Do a Life of Christ series sometime and count how many times for three and a half years of public ministry they tried to stone him, they tried to shove him off a cliff, they tried to kill him in various ways. And every time they tried to lay hold of him, it said his hour had not yet come. And so he was rescued. He was uh, snatched away. He passed through their midst. He was delivered from physical death. Time and time and time again. I don't know how many times. All right? Until now when he says, Father, the hour has come. And it's just marvelous to me. And he's, he offers up this prayer and he is so mentally prepared to go to the cross. And he goes into the garden and uh, he's ready for, the, for this uh, to be arrested. They show up with the swords and, and he submits. Even when, uh, <laughs> even when Peter, I don't know what he was going to do, he's going to single-handedly fight the entire Roman Empire or something. He just, just grabbed a sword and said, all right, this fisherman's going to do what he can do. Anyway. As far as this prayer goes, no Old Testament saint could pray this prayer. No Old Testament saint would even have a capacity to comprehend what Jesus is saying here. <clears throat> glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh. So, authority. That's a church age reality. Our great commission is grounded in the authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been granted unto me. Go therefore and make disciples. The authority of the church age. The Old Testament didn't have this. Authority over all flesh. To all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's a church age reality to how we know the Father and the Son in a way that the Old Testament believers could not. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son in the way Old Testament believers did not have. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Okay? And this is, you, you, this is a model for our prayers. It's oriented to the Father. It's centered on work. You know, if you're talking to a man, what does he want to talk about? You know, you're talking about work. You know, and, and here's the adult son talking to the adult father about the work that the father has for his son to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. His pre-incarnate glory, his pre-world glory, the glory that he had even as he received the, the human nature in the beginning of the humanity of Jesus Christ. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And when you go through this, I may end up reading the whole chapter to you here this morning, but when you go through this, you're going to find there is a depth of doctrine and there are dimensions here that we relate to in the body of Christ, but no Old Testament believer would have ever had even uh, the the slightest clue uh, to, to most of these things. All right. But now they have come to know. Now, verse 7, they have come to know. There's a recognition on the part of his disciples and uh, it's a recognition we have in the, in the church age. Uh, verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me for they are yours. And uh, just side note, if you want to jot this down, uh, pay attention to how the Apostle John uses cosmos in his gospel, in his epistles, in Revelation. Take a look at how John uses cosmos. 
Because here it's quite clear that believers are no longer of the world, that we are in the world but no longer of the world. And when he is contrasting believers, saved people, with cosmos residents, uh, that's significant. And I think it plays out as well in 1 John chapter 2, where he's uh, the provision for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the cosmos, also for the whole world, in, uh, in the contrast there. Anyway, he talks about them here. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you've given me, for they are yours. They are yours. And uh, this is a focus on our prayers too, that we are serving one another in our prayer life. Uh, Let's see here. All things are mine, are yours. Yours are mine. I have been glorified in them. We've got a text in Corinthians that relates this to us in the body of Christ. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. There's an intimacy we have based upon our positional truth in Christ. This is the introduction to that right here. I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which, I have, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. You see that corporate unity, that positional truth, unity that we have to be one, one body in Christ. We might be many members, but we're one body in Christ. Israel was a federated tribe, but they were not one body in a corporate way as we are in Christ. All right. Let's see, uh, verse 13, I come to you and these things I speak to the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. And uh, the provision that we have here through prayer, we're going to see joy, we're going to see peace, we're going to see love, we're going to see these things that come in response to prayer. Philippians talks about the peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding. And uh, that comes about through prayer. It doesn't come about if you don't engage in the prayer ministry the way we're commanded to. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This is a church function. It's not Israel's function. They will, in the tribulation, the 144,000 will have a global evangelistic ministry. But as constituted in the Old Testament, they never had a role like that. All right. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. It's not limited to the twelve but for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words, the apostolic revelation that would follow, the church canon that would follow, the Greek New Testament that would follow. Anybody that's a church-age believer priest from Pentecost to rapture qualifies in in this context. That they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. It's, this is supposed to be the best testimony in the world is our love, is our unity, one with, one, with another. That it becomes a testimony to uh, the Father having sent Christ. And when you get down through all of this, um, again, there's glory, there's unity, there's perfection. I in them and you in me, that's verse 23, that they may be perfected in unity. You want to know how we know no Old Testament believer could pray this prayer? Because there was no perfection in the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is teaching that. The Mosaic Covenant made nobody perfect. That perfection was not in Mosaic Covenant. But here's Jesus talking about being perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. All right. So I did almost read the entire chapter. Get down through verse 26. All right. So there it is. Here's all of Jesus' teachings. And you can take these, and I I hope that you do, and I hope you expand upon them. I hope you you jot out the different points of application. You can turn this into a devotional, as you can with all four of these sections. Let's go to the the James now and see James' teachings on prayer. James 1, James 4, and James 5. James is among the earliest of the New Testament books. Some say it's the earliest. Um... I say it's among the earliest books. I've come lately to consider that 
James actually uh, was dependent upon Galatians. I think that uh, they both came out of the conference that they had in Jerusalem in Acts 15, but I think that Galatians was written first and then James was written. In uh, I see some echoes of Galatians that are filtered throughout the book of James. Uh, can't prove it, but I think that's my thinking at this point. That if one of them influenced the other, I tend to think that it was Galatians that influenced James rather than the other way around. But be that as it may, it is one of the earliest books in the New Testament, and it's functionally it's uh, it's wisdom literature. If uh, had he written it in Hebrew and had it been included in the Old Testament canon, it would have been comparable to uh, Proverbs or, or Psalms. It would have been very uh, practical as as a piece of wisdom literature. But as it is, it's uh, it's our book of Proverbs in the New Testament. It's our wisdom literature for the Greek canon. And uh, he says a lot about prayer in this book, starting with chapter one. And, uh, okay, so I said 5 through 8 in, uh, on the slide, but really 2 through 4 introduces 5 through 8. You know, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Why do I need wisdom? Well, I need wisdom because I've got all this testing going on in verses 2 through 4. <laughs> okay, so consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so this is the testing process that we go through. And God puts us through this. He puts us through this because He put His Son through this. And, and the, the testing of His faith is what matured Him, what perfected Him. The testing of our faith is what perfects us. It suits us for our resurrection ministry, even as it suited Jesus for His resurrection ministry. And so if we're going to consider it all joy, how are we going to do that? We're going to do that in prayer. We're going to do that with our Father, the one who put us through these trials, because it's a, uh, that the real joy is not in our trials, the real joy is in how His grace sustains us through the trials. And so we fellowship with our Father and with His Son through every trial He puts us through. And then uh, through that, of course, we get the endurance. This is how believers, this is how you get you know, seasoned veterans, combat veterans instead of you know, rookie soldiers. The, the combat veterans are the ones that have been through it. And those are the ones that you, you want to be praying with. Those are the ones you want to serve with. And uh, we have it here described in this way. You ever notice that endurance doesn't come about real quickly? You want to be a distance runner? You want to be a distance bicyclist? You want to be a distance... I mean, whatever it is. And any of the endurance endeavors of, 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 of uh, athletics or physical endurance testings, uh, it takes a while to get there. Imagine that. <laughs> because just the act of building up that endurance is a process, and it takes time. And uh, to me, the, the, the benefits of prayer is why God delays to keep, keep the prayers coming, to delay the answer long enough whereby the, 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 the fruit is born in the, in, the, in the meantime. All right. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without approach, it will be given to him. And so in our prayers, we have access. And this is universal. It doesn't say go to a priest and have him intercede for you. You ask. You're a priest. You have access. And when you ask for wisdom, he's going to give in spades. He's going to give again and again beyond what we can ask or think. You've come to him for wisdom. Uh, If you're asking for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake. You're asking for a loaf of bread, he's not going to give you a stone. You're asking for wisdom. It's his will to give you wisdom. And so he gives, and he gives, and he gives liberally. I think that's, isn't that the King James rendering? Is liberally? All right. New American Standard uses generously, I guess. That's fine. Some people don't like the word liberal. I get it. But this is fine. This is, a, this is where you want to be a liberal. God answers prayers liberally and without reproach. Without reproach. Because this, uh, this is the comfort in our prayers in the sense that I was describing last week, sometimes we we limit our prayers based on what we think we've earned or deserved. That sometimes if we think we've been kind of, you know, we've been good boys lately, we can ask for more. Or we've been not so good lately, I probably shouldn't ask for so much. That's a tragic, pathetic, relative human way to pray. And God wants no part of it. When it comes to asking, and without reproach, this is the best part, we ask for something and God doesn't call us a bunch of dummies for taking so long to ask for that, right? There's no reproach. God doesn't say, well, you idiot, I gave that to you last week, what did you do with it? No, that's reproach, okay? Or what took you so long? You should have asked for that a, a year ago. Why, you're just asking me for that now? Okay, forget it, pal. 
you know, you're obviously in no hurry. Let me take my time to give this to you. No, God doesn't answer prayers like that. Without reproach. He's delighted that we came to Him. And He does provide. The wisdom will be granted. It will be given to Him. But He must ask in faith without any doubting. This is so, so important because how insulting is it to go to your Heavenly Father and ask for something that you doubt He's going to give you? How insulting is that? You know, as if, you know, your dad is Michael Dell or something, a multi-billionaire, and his son comes to him and says, Dad, uh, you know, can I have 20 bucks? <laughs> you know, or whatever. You know, how insulting is that? And, and even worse, asking if he has the 20 bucks. You know, dude, your dad is Michael Dell. He's got the 20 bucks, okay? Ask him for 20 million. Ask him for, you know, whatever you're asking him for. How insulting is it to go to your father and then doubt that he has what you need. And so he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Doubt is, uh, is the arch enemy of faith. And faith, by the way, faith doesn't mean we know everything. We still can have uncertainty just without the doubt. We can have a, a finite understanding, but we don't doubt because our faith is grounded in God. And where our understanding falls short, we just give it to Him. The Holy Spirit intercedes with groanings, pleading for words, and even if we don't know what to ask for, that's fine. So it doesn't mean we have to be omniscient about what we're asking for, what our prayer life is like. We can have no shortage of of, uh, limited, finite understanding. That doesn't mean we have doubt. Ask without doubting. Doubt just tosses you here and there. That man ought not to expect that he would receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. See, what we're learning and what we're learning in Hebrews, what we're learning in these different lessons, I think the Melchizedek priesthood is a marvelous priesthood for stability. I think that believer, mature believers with a, with a fervent, effectual prayer life are the most stable believers you ever met. Why? Because we have this anchor, sure and steadfast, one that enters within the veil. It's all about our stability as church-age believer priests. And so we're solid so long as we uh, are looking to the Lord and not doubting. And so there's a lot of prayer principles that we can glean from that. Also over to chapter 4, warnings about our prayers. On the slide it says verses 2 and 3. I'll go ahead and read 1, 2, and 3. I'll probably add verse 4 to it as well. Why not? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? You know, if we're just a bunch of Yodias and Synekes that just can't get along with one another, we're constantly fighting with one another, um, that reflects something. That reflects the state of our souls, that reflects the state of our priesthood and our ministry, that reflects uh, where we are in our Christian walk. And, uh, and if we really have, if we, don't, if we don't have that harmony with one another, why do we think we have fellowship with God? Why do we think uh, we can go to Him in prayer uh, in that kind of circumstance? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. And all of these are principles that we need to to categorize and list out there as we consider the applications to be made in our prayer life. You ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Those are the same pleasures that were mentioned back in in verse 1 that uh, that caused the war against the fellow members of the body of Christ. And uh, then it says, you adulteresses. That's what it really comes down to. When, When Scripture starts calling names, that gets your attention. That's designed as an attention getter. This was always something that when we had young kids that bothered us as parents, because we're trying to train our parents. You're going to learn this when the, when the little sister comes along. When you have, when you have multiple children, uh, they, they have sin natures, okay? And so they will, they will fight. They will, they will have issues between them. And, and sometimes those issues will include name-calling. And name-calling is, is, was not allowed in our house. We, we, we spanked that. We, we disciplined that. That was not acceptable. And... Um, and, and Sharon particularly was very much uh, riding, cracking that whip anytime she heard any kind of name calling. And, um, 
But then we started seeing the Lord use a lot of name calling in the Bible. <laughs> so he's calling these people adulteresses. We had a passage in Isaiah where he called, he was talking to Jerusalem, but he called them Sodom and he called them Gomorrah. And he had all that name calling. And then Jesus went, he said, he said you brood of vipers. And so Sharon and I had to figure that out and say, okay, how do we, how do we adapt this? This does not destroy our, our family policy of children who should not be name calling. That, uh, but there is a, a value, there can be a communication value in the right way, in a sanctified way, as the Lord uses it, because the name calling gets your attention. And to call somebody an adulteress would wake them up related to their worldly friendships. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And uh, this is really the issue. And so uh, it hampers your prayer life, it hampers your priesthood, it hampers any kind of fruit, it hampers what you're trying to do in the, in the uh, Melchizedek priesthood and your ministry because uh, you're, you're worldly-minded while you're trying to go to the Father in prayer. That's just like, like uh, he said in the earlier chapter, you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. We want no part of that. And then, of course, over to chapter 5. In a text that's primarily a prayer passage, some people want to say it's a charismatic healing passage, but it's centered on prayer in verses 13 through 18. And um, we have these rhetorical questions that are answered here. As it says, is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. And so the, the, uh, the, the suffering endeavor it's the field that He's put you in to develop your prayer life. It doesn't mean that if you pray, the suffering will go away. It just means that you'll have the, you'll have the blessing of being in communion with God while the suffering goes on. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Now here it can be rendered sick or it can be rendered weak. And I think the larger context of the whole passage is better to render it as weak, asthenes, without strength. He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him. It's a prayer application. And sometimes when, when you're weak, uh, if you're in the, the crisis mode of your prayer life, you want others to pray with you. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him into the garden and said, pray with me right now. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Same word, weak. Okay, Jesus wasn't sick in the garden of Gethsemane. He was weak and he needed the, the uh, apostles praying with him there. So is anyone among you weak? He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And that's not the ceremonial anointing of Creo. It's not a religious anointing. It's not a, a, uh, a healing anointing of a spiritual giftedness. It is a secular anointing that is, you know, clean the guy up. <laughs> if he's weak, if he's depressed, if he's discouraged, then help him cheer him up. Get him cleaned up, wash his feet, wash his head, anoint him with oil. All right, and the prayer, notice, the prayer offered in faith will save, sozo, will save. Here's a use of sozo to add to your database if you're color-coding your sozos. And it's not a healing, it's a, it's a sozo. The one who is, and, and again, it's translated as sick, it's not sick, it's uh, depressed. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. See, it's a depression, it's a weakness. It's a spiritual weakness that has to be... Uh, that, that's, that second word for sick in verse 15 it just speaks to exhaustion. Mentally exhausted, exhausted. Today we'd call it a midlife crisis or a nervous breakdown or some kind, of a, some kind of a collapse. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. There's value in intercessory confession, particularly when it's the elders of the church that are shepherding and leading their flock in these, uh, in these endeavors. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, the things you're struggling with so that your brothers can join you in those struggles. Pray for one another so that you may be healed, that you may be whole. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So that's our uh, prayer context. And then Elijah's the example. And Elijah's the one, you remember, that ran like a, like a scaredy cat against uh, Jezebel. That he had the great victory there against the prophets of Baal, but as soon as Jezebel was in the picture, he ran for the hills. But he's listed here. And so don't feel like, when it says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, 
and he prayed earnestly, don't feel like, well, you know, don't feel like you have to be at a certain level of your Christian growth before you can join the prayer meeting. All right? That's just wrong. Anybody can come to prayer meeting. We have, uh, in fact, we encourage anyone to come. That's, the, that's the, the blessing of it there. It's one of the most universal, probably the universal ministry that we all can share together. There's um, restrictions on other ministries. You know, if, if you want to teach Sunday school, we might not let you. We might, uh, we might uh, you know, I had a visitor one time, first time they ever visited Austin Bible Church. They saw the, the bulletin announcement that said we were looking for Sunday school teachers. They came and volunteered to be a Sunday school teacher. I don't even know who this person is. They were a visitor. So I reached out, I shook their hand, I said, how do you do? I'm Pastor Bob, who are you? And uh, you're not going to be a Sunday school teacher, <laughs> you know. We want to we know who you are. And uh, in fact, you've you got to be a member to be a Sunday school teacher, and you've got to pass the, uh, the estimation of, of Pat Pearson, our, de- our Sunday school deacon, and myself, and different things to make sure the doctrine is in place, and the training is there, and, and so forth. And, but so that's the aspect of it there. There's other ministries. You can't just be a deacon if, just because you want to. Uh, there's qualifications and there's expectations and the pastor you know, goes through the process there to make sure the man is suited or the woman, the deaconess is suited. But the prayer, mini- uh, prayer ministry of prayer meetings, guess what? You could have gotten saved this morning and we'll be happy to have you at prayer meeting. That's the thing. We welcome everyone to come. And even, uh, you don't want to pray out loud? Great, no problem. Just sit and listen. Join with us. Pray silently. Listen in. Because in praying for one another and confessing with one another, laying these matters out there, this is, uh, this is where that unity comes from. So uh, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Don't feel like you've got to become some kind of a super Christian before you can join prayer meeting. Elijah certainly was not. Elijah had fears and weaknesses and insecurities and, and other issues. And uh, there, there you go. Prayed earnestly that would not rain, did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. He prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced his fruit. Did that happen because he was so special? No. Because in the plan of God, Elijah was the servant at that time to be used by God in that way. Same thing with you and me. We are God's servant at this time to be used by God in all the ways that he wants to use us. And that's his business. And so it's a... Uh, it's a blessing. The chapter concludes then in verse 19 and 20. In fact, the book concludes. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. You ever consider how much of that's done in the prayer meetings? How much of that is done in prayer? We're not going to dispatch a deacon to go to their house and grab them by the ear and drag them back into church. But we are going to constantly be praying for them. Lord, work in their heart. Lord, open their eyes to their hunger. Cause them to be dissatisfied in their darkness. Just provoke them again and again. And we do so in prayer. Let them know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will here save again. Here's the sozo again like we had before. Will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So there, I think between Jesus' teaching and James' teachings, we got some pretty good outlines for our study on church age prayer. How about Paul's teachings? Did Paul have anything to say about prayer? He had a lot to say about prayer. In fact, Paul constantly in prayer, and I suspect it's because he was tested more than any other apostle that uh, he developed his prayer life the way that he did. The way that he did. The First Corinthians eleven four through thirteen, First Corinthians fourteen thirteen through eighteen, and those are interesting because they come during the apostolic age, while there were still tongues, there were still prophesy, uh, prophecy, there were prophetesses. All right, and so we have to glean principles out of those passages that we apply today in the uh, the completed canon era of the church. But still, they're valuable. We don't want to ignore them in our prayer studies. Ephesians six eighteen, that's right there at the end of the armor. How do we put our armor on anyway? And how do we stay on the alert? It's all done through prayer. Of course, Philippians four six is our passage today. Colossians four two through four. First Timothy, First Timothy two and First Timothy five. So these are the teachings here as they center on prayer. And take this outline also. Just take these points and say, you know what? You know, each one of these can become its own devotional, can become its own uh, Bible study to your kids or to your, uh, wherever you set up in your, in your uh, teaching ministries. Go to a nursing home and teach or wherever the Lord takes you. All right. 
1 Corinthians 11. Should I stop? Have you heard enough? Is this too much? Overkill? No, that's right. <laughs> the more we learn and the more we, we just soak it up and go, wow, there's a lot of material here. This is, this is nearly 300 verses of the New Testament that's boiled down into a, into a concentrated fashion. But Paul had some things to say here because it was imitative. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And it may be that prayer can be learned imitatively, should be learned imitatively. He did give a model, the Lord did, for His disciples praying this way. And if you're real new at prayer, well then just come and sit and listen. And, and uh, you know, the younger siblings can learn from the older siblings. And because uh, we're all imitators of Christ when it comes right down to it. How did Christ pray? Let's, uh, let's pray like that. Then... Uh, Verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now we're not in the age of prophecy anymore, but we still want to glean some very important principles here. Is that in prayer there is an element called headship. And we want to be mindful of headship as we pray. We want to be mindful of the Father's chain of command. We want to be mindful of the Father's plan and purpose. And that there's a difference between men and women. And men were to pray with their heads uncovered. Women were to pray with their heads covered. And so there's a distinction. And here we are in our insane generation now where people can't figure out if they're men or women or what they are or what they want to be next week or change something else based on what they think or feel or or, uh, identify. How insane. All right. In the beginning, God created the male and female, and here we go. And men, nothing on your head. Women, something on your head. Okay? And if you want more on that, we taught this back in the First Corinthians series. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. That it is a disgraceful thing equivalent to the exposure for harlotry that uh, would happen in a place like Corinth when you've got these uh, temple prostitutes all over the place, and uh, the exposure and the shame of that disgrace. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. If she's going to insist on doing this, then just buzz it down and, and, and do it. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So what is this all saying? And this is just the short version because we did this over several hours in, in the First Corinthians series. But there is a point whereby humanity is designed to image God. That we are in the image of God. And man is the image of God. And the woman is the helpmate for the man's work assignment there. And so we have distinctions between the man and the woman. The woman is the glory of man. There's a difference there. A man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Then when man was originally created, where was woman? In his rib. (laughs) Okay? Man was the original creation. And then, because it's not good for the man to be alone, out came the rib. But woman came from man. That's important. And so woman completes man. That's the design. And the woman is created for man's sake, not man for the woman's sake. Which I think is what it says there in verse 9. <laughs> All right. Wow. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> man does not originate from woman, woman from man. Indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman was created for the man's sake. Now all of this is not just a basic biology lesson or a basic history lesson. Or, or This is centered on prayer. Prayer and prophesying. This centers on the church age functions whereby we are communicating with God and God is communicating through us in the sense of prophetic utterance in the prophets and the prophetesses. There were prophetesses in the early church. Philip had four virgin daughters though all four of them were prophetesses. Okay? And so... For a woman to issue forth a prophecy or an utterance, 
uh, could be an issue, particularly could be a question of authority, and this is designed to make sure that the boundaries are still in place. Different aspects there. So the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Remember, angels are watching everything that happens. Angels are watching our church services, they're, they're watching our prayer meetings, they're watching our, uh, our, our marriages and our families and everything that we do in the church age. Angels are watching and angels are testifying to the manifold wisdom of God. And the primary thing they're testifying to in the angelic conflict, what resolves the angelic conflict is the satanic rebellion and what happens when uh, someone who's supposed to be in submission decides they don't like that submission role. They want to be in charge. They want to elevate their throne. They want to be like the Most High God. And that they don't like, what, you know, go through the five eye wells of Satan. See? And so in reality, the female role in the male and female he created them. You ever wonder why there's no girl angels? <laughs> you ever wonder why male and female he did not create the angels? But with Adam and Eve, male and female, he created them. And this is why humanity resolves angelity as far as the angelic conflict goes in the overall Alpha to Omega plan of God. Because it's the woman's role in faithful submission. It's the woman's role that highlights where Satan and the fallen angels blew it. It's what Jesus did. Jesus came and he submitted himself to the will of the Father. Satan was all about self-promotion. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus defied what Satan's rebellion was all about. So Jesus portrayed that, that faithful submission role. And the whole thing about, well, if I submit then I'm not equal, that's garbage. That's, that's feminism trying to confuse things that, you know, unlike how biblical Christianity lays it out there. It, it, submission is not inequality. God the Son is still equally the Father, even as, you know, still equal with the Father. I and the Father are one. But he submitted to the Father when he said, not my will, but thine be done. Husbands and wives, you two are one. The two become one flesh. The wife and the husband are one. But the wife is to be in submission. See? Sounds like a wedding I preached recently. All right. So judge for yourselves. And so the angels are watching because of the angels. Anyway, there's a whole prayer aspect there. Chapter 14. Verses 13 through 18. Let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I'm going to take the tongues away from things here because we're in the post-tongues era of the church. But still, there's a concept here related to prayers whereby the spirit and the mind are spoken of as distinct entities, distinct functions. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And we want to consider, where's the value in that? And if I'm mindlessly praying, can I mindlessly pray in the spirit The Holy Spirit can intercede on my behalf with groanings to deep for understandings and in a sense that's available to me. But what what is the outcome then if I'm praying without my intellect being engaged? Well he says, glad you asked because verse 15 has the answer. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, I will pray with the mind also. I will will, uh, sing with the Spirit, I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen and your giving of thanks since he does not know what you are saying? Now some of this doesn't apply because we're not in the apostolic age and nobody's speaking in tongues and we don't have those things happening beyond our comprehension. We want to be engaged, we want to be edified and to have our mind engaged as we're praying becomes very important. This is uh, the edifying process of this. And this also happens, we get edified in prayer meetings a lot as things get prayed for and the Word of God ministers and, and the edification that happens in the prayer times. It's an amazing thing. And then we can say the Amen. Saying the Amen at the giving of thanks. The joys of being able to add an Amen to your brother's prayer, your sister's prayer. It's a delight. It makes you a fellow worker. It invests you in their struggle. And you offer 
the amen. Well, I'm out of time. So remind me when we come back on Wednesday, we'll pick up with Ephesians, Colossians, Timothy, and then we've got John's teachings in 1 John 5. 1 John 5. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for prayer. Thank you that we can go to prayer individually. We can go to prayer um, in our marriage. We're heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. First uh, Peter 3 makes it clear that husbands and wives are prayer partners. Likewise, that we can be in prayer with our congregation, in prayer with the body of Christ, praying with the elders, praying with one another. The fervent effectual prayers, Father, I thank you for teaching us these principles. Particularly, Father, as our flock is now in a season, a season of struggle, a season of diminished uh, income, a season of diminished uh, attendance. And so what better time, Father, than to, uh, to come before you, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.